won't take long, but uh, unfortunately, it seems like that spirit sometimes moves you to do things you're not comfortable doing. I don't know, just some of you feel like, if you've ever been in a place where you feel like you're rolling a ball uphill, and just as you get towards the top, it falls off the edge, and you do that over and over and over again. And maybe sometimes it's because we're rolling the ball up the wrong hill. in Chile, 33 miners entered a, cave, or in a mine and went down to extract gold. And about the time they got down there, a good chunk of the mountain shifted and closed off every access. 2,000 feet down, they were pinned for a trap for 69 days. They had 10 drills set up there, drilling to try to reach them to see if they were even alive. And they had enough information to know that there was an area that they could be alive, a small area and they drilled for days and they knew they were deep enough but every time they got close the drills would curve away and uh, the rock was so hard it wouldn't allow them through and they they had all given up pretty much and one man had one of those light bulb moments and he got the head drill and he said we know what we're doing wrong he said learn from our mistakes and he said, you need to drill like this. And of course the head driller's like, you're crazy. That's the wrong direction. And probably my favorite line I'd like to carry, just it means a lot to me. And he said, yes, I know that aim to miss. And so it clicked with them. And, and basically what they did is they, they allowed for the deflection of the mountain. And they were able to penetrate and get to those men. And a lot of us need, needed a need to change our trajectory. We get so focused on the place we want to be, and we believe it's there. But God rarely directs you directly there, and it's rarely a direct journey. And quite often there's something that we need, that we need to aim for that looks like it's the wrong direction. And that deflection takes us where we've always wanted to be. And that happens in just just life. I mean, this is just basic life. I had a, I had a time where I was praying pretty hard for a, a house to sell. And I was passionate about it. And I knew of some people going through some really hard times. And so God spoke to me like he does often in the shower. I don't know why. It's a good place. Stay in there a long time. Anyhow, he basically, in my words, he said, stop nagging. He said, you brought it to me, you know what you want, and I'll thank me for it. Now take that passion, that energy, to words. These people you know, take that passion for their problem. And God can't be manipulated, I know that. He honors his word, and I think he knows our hearts, but I took that energy towards and it's I'm still working on that but towards somebody else's problem and you know I don't want to put this in the wrong light but 48 hours later I had an answer and I'm not trying to put God that you know like I said that we can manipulate to get our things but the point was when we change our trajectory towards somebody else's need I think we'd be surprised how many times our own needs taken care of
and the difference that would make in a group. The person, the, the people that we're praying, I, I believe God takes great joy and I believe he responds when we take someone else's need to him. And so in reality, we're, we're bringing, hoping in the reality of that person's need being met and in this, in also receiving our own. And just think of the, the influence that has on everybody else. And so when we're not doing that, when we're just totally focused in on our, on our own, I mean, basically, we people are de- that are dependent on us are missing out because of that focus. And so I guess, yeah, it just it feels like so often, I know from my own side, my own life, you know, I'm just trying to focus on, on that. And the reality of, of receiving what we're looking for is actually a different direction than what we expected. And the one thing God doesn't have is flesh and bones. He counts on us to do that. You know, there are people drowning around us, and God can see this, but he's also placed us strategically in a place to help them, and if we're totally focused in on our own, we completely miss that, and somebody else pays the price. So I just encourage you to think about that, you know, your trajectory. If you just push the ball up the same hill time and time again, you're going to end up at the bottom of the same place there's a way to get there you know Chad's been working towards spiritual warfare but that's not a direct that's not a direct journey you get the mind renewed spiritual warfare will be there thank you it's good bro real good amen thank you y'all receive that amen I guess he just summed up a lot of Ephesian teaching faster than I could have. So thank you for uh, cutting through all my stuff and <laughs> making it easier on everybody else to understand. So thank you guys for worship. The Lord is good in them. How many of you guys are blessed by the worship team? Just give Jesus a praise in them. I love these guys. I've, they've come such a long way, and um, they've grown a lot, and, and uh, they're continuing to grow, and they've been such a huge blessing to this body, um, amazing blessing. So if you guys enjoyed worship, um, tonight we have a service where you don't have to listen to me speak. They... Uh, they're going to worship all night, or at least for a couple hours anyway. So we just get here tonight about, I don't know what time, 6, 6.30, and um, we just worship God and lay on our faces and let the Lord do whatever He wants. It's always a very awesome, special time if you, if you enter in, and uh, if you give yourself to the Lord, He's, he's, he's met me every time during worship. And uh, so we invite you to come back this evening. Uh, if you already have plans, um, there's no condemnation at all we we uh we understand but we if you can make it then we'd love to see you here this evening amen uh for those of you who uh, can remember and want to be a part of it um we are having our our diaper drive uh december 10th and so we're trying to stock up as many diapers as possible before that date and um if you're financially able if you're not please don't don't put yourself into a, a, a problem 
But if you're financially able to assist with that, um, just as you're out and about, maybe buy a package of diapers, 2T, 3T, something like that. Um, bring them in, and you can set them in the back over here, and we'll just keep collecting them until the day, and then we'll have a big day uh, out here uh, by the skate park, weather permitting, um, coffee, bounce house, let people come in, pray for them, give them a sleeve of diapers to offset all those expenses, hopefully for December, so they can maybe buy their kids a little more Christmas presents. Amen? So that's our goal, and that's our heart. So if you want to be a part of that, please don't forget, set an alert on your phone or whatever. If you go to Walmart, you know, ask Siri to help you remember or whoever you use. Amen? All right. Um, again, each week we are um, we're having to play catch-up a little bit because there's so many new people who come in. I apologize, but you jumped in midstream. Uh, that's your fault, not mine. Um, <laughs> we've been in Ephesians. We're going through the entire book verse by verse, and uh, we're extracting Paul's um, intention for the people of God to live a life so dramatically and so fulfilled in Christ that it not only brings forth a unity in the body, but it also brings forth an ability for spiritual warfare that is bound to come to everyone who names the name of Christ. And we, we emphasize every week that when people read the book of Ephesians nine times out of ten, the first place they want to go to is chapter six. You know, we get drunk on spiritual power, spiritual warfare. We, we want to feel like, you know, we have authority over the devil. And we're just going to bind and rebuke and shout and scream and dance and do whatever we do to make the devil go away. Well, the problem with that is, is if you don't live a lifestyle of faith and of obedience to God, I'm not talking about legalism, and love towards the brethren, if you don't do what's in chapters one through five or even six and a half, then by the time you get to spiritual warfare, you're already defeated, and then you wonder why the devil's not moving away from you, <laughs> because he already has you. And you think, no, I'm a believer. You know, Paul made it very clear that whoever you obey, that's whose slave you are, whether sin or righteousness. He's talking to believers. One moment of salvific reality only brings you into the kingdom. It doesn't secure it completely for you for forever. You've got to walk out your salvation with fear and with trembling before the Lord. You with me? Okay, so it's like people get saved and then they think that that's it. And then because they've had its one experience that now they can do whatever they want and they can live however they want and then they can go out and, and, and attack the enemy. Let me ask you this. How many of you had kids? Yeah. Having a child is really parallel to salvation. You're born. How strong was your baby when it first came out? Was it ready to take on giants and devils? No. See, there's a time frame of building and growing. The reality's there. The DNA's there. The life is there. The manifest reality of there is there, but the, the, the power, the strength, the maturity is not there. Do you, you understand this? This is why we must grow. This is why we must grow the same way Jesus did. Do you understand that when Jesus took on flesh and bone, he took on our reality to such a degree that he had to go through what we had to go through so that we could be like him? You remember the verse where it says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. If you remember, read the verse where it says, and he, having become perfect, he became the author of our salvation. That verse really messes with a lot of theological heads. Jesus became perfect. 
I thought he already was perfect. No, no, he wasn't perfect in the sense that you define perfection. Okay? See, you think perfect is without sin. Jesus was already without sin. So he didn't need to become perfect in that way. So what does it mean to become perfect? See, you and I think that if we can get through a week without sin, we've had a perfect week. No. Perfection is completion. It's the arrival at a full manifest reality of, of maturity. And Jesus had to be made perfect, the Bible says. Go read it. You with me? Because our minds do not define the word of God the way they should be, so we think perfection is flawlessness. Jesus was flawless, but he was not complete. Why? Because he had to walk through your reality so that we could manifest ourselves into his. Is this making sense to you? So he had to walk a certain way, live a certain way, to be able to overtake the power of darkness. Remove the life of Jesus from, from him, him, himself, and then he has no authority over the earth. How he lived from the time he was born to the time he turned 30 gave him the ability to meet the devil in the wilderness. And not only overcome him, but send him running. He'd never, the devil had never met a man like Jesus before. You say, well, that's because he was without sin. No, Adam was without sin. And the devil came to him too. And he didn't turn away running. See, the lack of sin isn't the issue. Because see, the blood takes care of that, if you believe this is why modern Christendom focuses everything about sin and who's right and who's wrong. We become spiritual masters at picking out who was right and who was wrong, especially in relationships. You know, my wife did me wrong. You know, or my husband did me wrong. And we're blind to the fact that we've done Christ wrong and everybody else wrong in our life, and, and we want to automatically just assume that everything that we've ever done is perfect. Forgiveness happens because of love. A lack of forgiveness shows a lack of love. Yikes. See, you're not a prophet if you can tell what's wrong. The devil can do that. Jesus knew what was wrong. Jesus knew what the lie was, but he came to be truth. So how do you combat the lie? Not by telling the truth, but by being truth. You with me? Because the devil told the truth in Matthew 4. He quoted scripture. Is scripture true? But scripture out of the mouth of someone who, of someone who isn't truth isn't true. I just ruffled some theological feathers. I know I just did. What, what, you, you think that the, because the devil speaks the word of God to you that it's life? My Bible says the letter kills. That's what my Bible says. Does yours say that? The letter is, is scripture. But the spirit gives life. See, it's the spirit by which we live that gives us the authority that Jesus had, not the 
accuracy of theological terms or the argumentation thereof. It's the spirit by which we live that causes demons to flee. Are you following me? So Ephesians is written from Paul's standpoint to get people ready for such a point in their life that the enemy is going to come. But so masterfully written that Paul deals so effectively with human life that by the time he gets to chapter 6, I've mentioned this more times than not during this series, that by the time he gets to chapter 6, he doesn't even need to tell you how to fight the enemy anymore. Because if you've done 1 through 5, there's no more fight left. You just stand. You stand on what? Everything you've done in 1 through 5. This is why the book of Ephesians is one of the most complete books of spiritual um, achievement that we could ever come to. Because it deals with everything. It deals with who we are in Christ, what we were before Christ. It deals with our relationships. In fact, he spends almost three chapters talking about how we should get along with each other. <laughs> you know why? Because if you're too busy fighting yourself or someone else, you have no ability to fight the devil. Zero. He deals with marriages. He deals with children. He deals with family life. All before he gets to spiritual warfare. Why? Because if you've done all of that, the war is already won. You understand this? How we treat each other is the war. <laughs> yeah. See, we want to make it some floating pile of ethereal goo out there that the devil is out, you know, doing. No, this is where it's worked out. This is why Paul specifically says you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Why? Because they were wrestling against flesh and blood. So he spends five chapters teaching them how to not wrestle against flesh and blood. Yeah. See, I really have a hard time with American Christianity, especially religious Christianity, because it's so out there, like, woo, that the practical reality of it's lost. That Jesus himself even says, do not even come to worship me if you have a problem with your brother. He says, you go make it right with them, and then you come and bring your offering to me. <laughs> you know, like, well, we just need our personal relationship with Jesus. Your personal relationship with Jesus is no good if your relationship with your brother is out of, out of sync. Does it make sense? Yeah, I'm already stepping on a few toes. I'm sorry. Ah, we're in chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 25. Oh, man. So Paul here in verse 25, I want to I I broaden the idea of what we're about to read here because we are so single, narrow-minded as, as modern believers that we think these things only exist in one reality, right? I just got done saying that being true is the essence of where, where we're going. Becoming truth, not just speaking truth. Becoming truth. Jesus is the way, the, and the life, right? And he says that in John 17, he prays that we would be one with the Father the same way he's one. And if he's truth and he wants us to be one with him, then that makes us on this journey to being truth. Do you realize that truth can be truth even if it's not quite Morally perfect? How many times did people get healed because they were just being true in their confession to God? 
You with me? Remember the woman? Like, how many women in here would be okay with this? Yeah, you say you love Jesus, right? But you're following behind him, and you've got a daughter that's sick at home, and he calls you a dog. That's not the love of God. And they get mad when a pastor, whatever, something even far less. And she's like, you're right. I am a dog. But the truth is, I'm your dog. He's like, that's a good answer. Your daughter's healed. See, she accepted reality. She didn't fight it. She accepted truth. This is why when we run and try to hide behind religion and not admit that we're sinners, we can't be healed. That's why 1 John says, whoever says he's not a sinner is of the devil. Now, we're not going to say that in the total sense, but we'll say it in a singular sense. Like in the, in the corporate scheme of our life, we'll admit we're sinners. But when we're in these individual circumstances, I'm not the one that's wrong. It's them. <laughs> See that? See how that works? Oh, but I'm a sinner. But in this situation, I'm not wrong. Well, congratulations, you're eating from the, fruit, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you still have no ability to bring life. Because if life was present, your family would be healed, it would be restored, it would be whole. Why? Because we read it in the book. Not your opinion, not mine. The book says what it says. And when it's lived in the power of the Spirit, it is not a lie. It is truth. Therefore, put away lying. What does that mean? That you don't tell a lie to somebody? Obviously. But put away living in a lie, which could look like this. Not believing that Christ made you free. Living under the power of a lie will cause you to lie to other people. This is why Paul's saying don't lie, because if you get rid of the lie inside of yourself, you will naturally be truth to other people. Right? What does the Bible say? Out of the abundance of the heart. So if you get truth inside of you and the lie is outside of you, then what's going to come out of you is going to be truth. Put away lying. Let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor. Because we are members of one another. You get that? How many of you guys didn't realize, you don't have to raise your hand, how many of you guys didn't realize that have been here through this teaching how important connection to community and how, you, how dependent you were on the person in the building than you realized after, re, after listening to this series? Because see, we, we, we in America are like, well, this is my personal relationship with Jesus. What good is that if it's not connected to a whole? And we only want to be connected when it's convenient. When we're the one giving the word, but we don't want to receive one. It's like a vein that only lets, you know, blood go one way. It's got to have a return back to the heart. It's got to be a circle. You with me? Put away lying. Let me ask you this. Somebody come, how important is community? According to Ephesians, Paul's went through a lot of time talking about our relationships with one another, how we need one another, how we're dependent upon one another, how we treat one another. He's went through great lengths to explain this to the Ephesian church, has he not? Okay. Somebody comes and asks you this. How are you doing? You know when a brother asks you that, it's different than the cashier at Walmart? 
because they really don't care. When a brother asks you or a sister asks you, how are you doing? And you say, I'm fine, but you're not. What is that? Do you know why we say I'm fine when we're not? Because we're afraid that if they know what we're going through, we won't look as spiritual as we've claimed to be. We got to keep that mask polished. I don't know why. It's never served anyone well. It certainly hasn't for me. So Paul's saying here, if we're going to get to that point where we're lying to one another, we're harming one another. And if you go back to the previous teachings we talked about, the body heals itself. So when the body is giving of itself to someone else in a way of healing and saying, how are you? And we don't want to admit that. And we lie to them and tell them we're okay when we're not. What we've done is hurt ourselves because we are members one of another. This is why church culture today does not like community. American church culture is not built to be communal. It's built to be a show that you go to one day a week, maybe two. You don't know anybody there. You have this corporate worship, and then you go home. Because community is messy, it's hard, it requires a ton of time, it requires a ton of sacrifice, and it requires a ton of vulnerability. All of those things the church just isn't interested in. If they can get you in the door, take your check, and send you back out, they're usually pretty happy. Or if they can get you to serve... I know churches that have served people to death. <laughs> a bunch of them. Serve the house, serve the house, serve the house, serve the house. Listen, if you have to tell people to serve, they're not servants. If you stay here long enough and you come week after week after week and you stay here for, for a whole year of services, you're never once going to see me walk up to you and ask you to serve anywhere. Why? Because I'm the type of guy that I know that people who really want to serve are going to come to me and say, what can I do? Yeah? Because see, my job is to protect you, not to work you to death. And if there's a load that needs to be carried... I'll carry it until someone else comes and says, what can I do? You with me? We are members one of another. So let's look at it this way. See, we're about to get to Ephesians 6. Well, not at the rate we're going, but we're headed there. <laughs> Verse 14 of Ephesians 6 says, Stand... Therefore, having your loins girded about with truth. Stand, having your loins girded about with truth. Stand, that word stand means to hold a position. It doesn't mean to advance. It doesn't mean anything but just hold the position that you have. Having your loins girded about with truth. Why does Paul equate 
truth to the loins. Because it's the protection of the reproduction of the body. This is where reproduction happens in the loins. And if we're reproducing the lie, we are going to slowly choke ourselves out of our own existence in time. You ever wonder why generations get worse and worse and worse and worse in sin? It's because the church hasn't lived in truth. So she's procreated people who are more acceptable to the lie. Why? Because they sniff that spirit out when they're in the church, when they're young. Young people come to church and they look at people and go, y'all are all a bunch of freaking hypocrites. True. I remember being seven years old in church with spiritual understanding, but zero maturity to be able to factor it all. <laughs> but I could see the lie whenever it was on somebody. And man, they guys would come, hey, brother, how's it going? I'm like, brother, man, I know how you treat your kids. Like, I go to school with them. You're a turd, man. You, you, you. And it caused me to look at people and go, what? It really had, I had to start fighting a lot of things. I learned that I was, I was using a spiritual gift the wrong way in judgment. And that was wrong, but I still saw it. Why? Because the church was replicating a lie by how she was living. Not by just what she was saying. It was, the people were saying the right things. You get that? But the spirit of the church was a lie. That's why it says, put away lying. It's not just talking about it. It's living. Because out of what you live is what you're supposed to speak. And when the young people see the propagation of a lie in the loins of the church, they're not standing on truth and being true one to another. They run away from it, which causes generational degradation. It's our fault. And we're not going to outvote ourselves into a better position. You want revival? It has to start in the home with the families, with the fathers and the mothers, being true again. One to another. And then being true amongst the church. And stop lying to each other when someone truly cares for your soul and says, how are you? I'm fine. We need to have an altar call? Or are we all good? We carry on? No, okay. Hopefully you're repenting as I'm preaching. See, if the enemy can infiltrate our reproduction, then he can thwart our replication. Truth. How important is it to, to be true? You know, you can be true, like I just said, when you're not morally perfect. How you doing? I'm not doing very well. I know by faith I'm supposed to say this, dot, 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 dot. But circumstantially, I really could use some help. Do you know what that would do to somebody? Like if they heard that, they'd be like, oh my gosh, let's pray, bro. Let's, let's get this thing. I'm with you. I know some churches you say stuff like that, and then you become the gossip central. You know, if that ever happens here, trust me, I will be on top of that. I ever find out about any of that going on, you're going to see a side of me you do not like. Because I don't care. I don't care. 
I'm not trying to build a big church. I don't care how many people, I don't care if there's two people in here or 2,000 people in here. I'll face God and I'm scared of that day and I'm going to preach what's right. And so if I have to get you out because you're picking on somebody, there's the door. And take your tithe with you. I don't care about your money. I care about you. I do not care about your money. You can give it to another church for all I care. God will supply our needs. I care about your heart. I do not want him to drag me by the scruff of my neck to the final day of judgment and force me into people's faces and say, look at them. You didn't tell them the truth. Oh. Double judgment for leaders, right? Everybody wants the microphone, but nobody wants the double judgment. Oh, man, this is why I don't care. I really fear God. You are his people. You're not just his people. You're his very own children. And if you screw with my children, you're going to see a side of me you don't like. And if I mess with you, it ain't good for me. You're precious. And if you don't believe that you're precious, you've already admitted and bought a lie. I mean, you're worth the blood of his son. But I'm not perfect. You're never going to be perfect the way you want to be perfect. You're never going to reach moral perfection. Never going to happen. So why are you demanding it in, in your home? I think my Bible somewhere says, love covers a multitude of sin. Oh, that's so great. It's great whenever, you know, you're the one receiving the covering. But you realize to have that love present, you got to have a multitude of sin present? In order for that verse to be fulfilled, you have to have a multitude of sin present for love to cover it. Don't you? Don't you? Who, who wants that in the relationship? Multitude of sin. Anybody? We can lay hands on you and give you the anointing. I'm sure it's there. See, we all like that verse until it actually has to be applied from us. And then we're like, man, i got to overlook all this stuff. Because if I don't overlook it and carry with them, God's not going to overlook mine. Well, how do you say that? Because if I don't forgive, I won't be forgiven. It's a two-way street. This is why our relationship with one another is so tangibly powerful because God says, listen, I will not forgive you of your sins if you do not release your brother. Whoa, my personal relationship with Jesus is bigger than the community. No, it's not. No, it's not. Listen, whoever told you or created this idea in your mind that when you get to heaven, it's just going to be you and Jesus, I'm going to be there. I know some of you don't like me, but I'm going to be there. And in fact, if you don't like me, I'm going to ask God to make me your neighbor. Yeah. Uh, you're going to wake up. At, well, not wake up. You're going to walk out and see me on my coffee every floor. How you doing? <laughs> Why? Because love, love should be our goal. Not what you think about me, what you prefer, what you don't prefer. See, there may be parts of you that I don't like, but guess what? God made those parts too. And if he put that in you, who am I to say that I'm so selfish that I don't want any part of that? See, those parts that I may not care for, Paul says, deserve more honor. 
Doesn't that know what he says? When's the last time you've taken a weakness in a brother and given it more honor? Instead of using it to pick him apart about where he's wrong and what he did and what he should have done and what he didn't do. Be careful reminding God of how somebody hurt you in your life because he may just very well remind you how you hurt his son. Ooh. See, to lie to one another is to lie to ourselves. To live in a lie affects the entirety of the body. You guys are going to come to a real strong reality that how you live affects more than just yourself. But what does Paul say? One member suffers, they all suffer. You know what that means? That means if you're having a good day and somebody else is having a bad, guess what day, kind of day you get to have? You've got to be selfless and lay aside your good day to be able to suffer with those who are having a bad one. Isn't that what Jesus did? He was having a real good day before he came down here. Hmm. See, fear, the, the lie brings fear because the, the devil is, is a liar and fear is his tool. And the lie brings fear. It brings fear that you're not going to be accepted by God. It brings fear that you're not going to be accepted by your brother. So we, st- we keep him at arm's length because we're afraid or we're afraid of being hurt again. Anybody want to be hurt again? What do, you mean, what do you think it means when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me? See, a cross is where you suffer for someone else, not where you suffer for yourself. If we take Jesus as the ultimate example of what a cross is, and he defines everything in human life, does he not? His cross was whose cross? So when he says, you take up your cross, it's probably going to be somebody else's. I've got to wash the dishes and carry my cross. No, that's your duty. I've got to go to work and carry my cross. No, that's just part of the curse. You have to, you got to work. It's not your cross. The cross is a sacrifice of that which is perfect. What happens when you finally get to a place in your life where you achieve the perfection you want and then God says, I want you to slaughter it for their sake? It's taken me all these years to get here. Yeah, that's the preparation was for the moment. If you don't em- em- embrace the moment, the preparation is futile. Right? Jesus finally got to this place where he was made perfect and became the author of salvation to all them who believe. What did that full completion actually look like being made perfect? It was the sacrifice. Do you know you were born to be a sacrifice? The Bible calls it a living. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you know, you know what it says. It's just we just don't keep it rolling here. You were born to be a sacrifice. You were not. You were not. You and I weren't born to be selfish. So we, when we fear, we bought the lie. 
We're, fear, we're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of rejection from God, which is why when you have a bad week and you fall into sin, you feel like God's way out there and you're way down here and you don't actually believe he's still with you. I, I can always give a litmus test of maturity based on how fast it takes somebody to recover from self-inflicted sin. Because most people, when they fall into sin, they stay sin drunk for a couple weeks, a month, six months, a year. Because they don't feel worthy, they're fear of rejection, they're afraid of this, and God doesn't love me, and I screwed it up, and I'm a failure. When in reality, if you just stop and thought about it just for a second, that Jesus knew everything, and he knew that you were going to sin again, and he still died for you, and it didn't change the cross, and it didn't change his his choice to die for you, then there's still a sacrifice for the sin you just committed, then why are you still trying to pay for your own crimes as if his wasn't good enough? See, a mature person's like, oh, man, that, that old humanity I'll be cured of one day just popped back up. But you know what? There's a blood. There's a, there's a DNA that's stronger than this rotten carcass. And all I got to do is apply that blood to this old rotten man. And guess what happened to that man? He just goes away again. Oh, the devil. No, you got to pay for that. You got to suffer. You got you to work harder. You got to do better. You're going to have to fast more and pray. What? No. I say this all the time. We fast and pray because we're sons, not so that we can feel like one. That's good stuff. All right. So the presence of a lie in the midst of a body, it, it destroys the, 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 the body as a whole. We're supposed to live true to one another. How many of you ever hid sin in your life because you were afraid? And you'd come to church because you're afraid, and then you leave church the same way because you're still hiding it. What Jesus say? He says, those who love the light, they run to it so that their deeds can be exposed. Why? Because in the exposure is the freedom. It's not the shame, it's the freedom. See, that's where you've bought the lie that the exposure is the shame. It's not. You need to renew your mind and understand that the exposure is the freedom. It's not the shame. The only reason we have shame is because, is because we're trying to actually feel like this deified image of God in the earth that we could never obtain. And as soon as we find sin back in our life, we're like, oh, it must be terrible. No, you're a human. And Jesus is very familiar with what it means to be a human. I love that about him. He knows what it's like to walk this earth. Man, a God that would do that for me is just amazing. It's powerful. I say this all the time, and I love ruffling theological feathers, but God didn't really know what it was like to be a human before Jesus came. He knew humanity, but he didn't experientially know what it was like to be a human. We were created in his image, but he did not bear flesh and bone. And he certainly didn't live in a culture that is sin-filled and sick. 
when Jesus was on the throne before his incarnation, the devil wasn't whispering in his ear lustful thoughts. <laughs> you get that. But as soon as he became a man, he faced every temptation that we ever faced. Powerful that he would do that for me. And then walk through it sinless so that I could take on his identity. So then right after I sin, which one is more real to me? The one he gave me or the one that I feel like I need to earn on my own? So we know the right answer, but which one did you really choose? Because if you stew in your own condemnation for a few days, you chose the wrong one. Well, brother, you're just saying it's okay to sin. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it's okay to take your sin to the place it should belong. Under the blood. Where it vanishes. Not only from the altar, because it's burned up, but from God's mind. And so if it's not in his, why is it in yours? If it's not in God's mind, why is it in yours? Because we don't have a renewed mind yet. Because we don't know how to fight. We don't know what spiritual warfare is really about. We think spiritual warfare is shouting and screaming at the devil. No, like John said earlier, spiritual warfare is about holding this mind to such a degree that you become such a servant to God to bless other people instead of yourself. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Let each person esteem others highly than he, higher than he esteems himself. This is the mind of Christ. Within the mind of Christ, there is no chaos. And if you're esteeming someone higher than yourself, you can't blame them and accuse them. It's impossible. If you're blaming and accusing your brother, you're not esteeming them higher than yourself. The essence of blame and accusation means you're asserting yourself over your brother. But you don't know the wound. I don't care about your wound because it's not as bad as what Jesus went through. You can't tell, you're, going to tell me, you're actually going to tell me that what they did to you is unhealable. And see, the healing doesn't depend on their behavior. It depends on yours. Because see, if you're completely healed, it doesn't matter if they wound you again because it will have no effect. Do you follow what I'm saying? You know why I say sometimes I don't care? Because I did care at one point in my life, and people really hurt me in church as a pastor. Wounded me deeply, scarred me, hurt me. Oh, it's terrible. Oh, I hated it. I mean, it's terrible. But God got me to a place where I was completely healed to where when people say things about me anymore, I don't even feel it. Like, I don't even feel it anymore. I'm like, man, that... I actually feel sorry for them sometimes. I'm like, they have no clue the, the bondage they're living in to, to, to say those types of things. Whereas 20 years ago, it just destroyed me. Do you know why you were wounded in the first place? Because you were in love. Love is vulnerable. Love is able to be hurt. But love is also able to heal. Oh, man. See, so how we live with each other empowers the truth or empowers light. We are members of one another. If you cut somebody else off, what are you doing? 
You're butchering yourself. Do you think Jesus is going to be okay with all of us having our different denominations and standing before him in all of our little segments on the final day of judgment? <laughs> He's going to be like, what did you guys do with all this? Why? 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 And we're all going to have to say, because we didn't love one another. Because we won't be able to lie in that moment. The truth will just come out of us. Because we didn't love one another. Why the division in your home? Because we didn't love one another. Oh, man. All right. So, so the enemy uses the lie against your own desire and morality. So when the lie comes to you the first time, it usually is disguised as truth. That's why you buy it. You get that? The devil's not going to show up and pitch four corns and tail and all that kind of stuff with a guttural voice lying to you. He's going to tell you something that seems true because the circumstances are backing up what he's saying. With me? So in the beginning, whenever in Genesis 3, whenever he showed Eve that fruit, Adam and Eve that fruit, he showed them what they didn't have by a lie. The lie was there because they already had what he told them they didn't have. He said, you'll be like God. But they already were. Not, they weren't gods. I'm not saying that. But they were like God. They were pure, holy, innocent, without sin, made the image of God. I mean, how they were everything you and I are still trying to feel like to, to get to be. Does that make sense to you? Like what they had in the beginning is, is like what we want to feel throughout the week, you know, even though it's already a reality. It's the same thing. The devil uses the same lie against you as he uses against them. He just tells you that you're not that thing, so then you begin to pursue the thing that you, that you want to be. As, and I, when, I, when I go through the Sonship series, like oh, this teaching is built upon like three or four different teachings, and you can go back and listen to them all. But when I go through the Sonship teaching, I say this all the time. I say, Christianity pursues the things that sons naturally possess. Think about that. In fact, Christianity spends its entire existence trying to become the thing they already are. And then one day, after years and years and years of religious and spiritual torment, people wake up and go, Jesus loves me. Wow. You think, I know that. No, if you buy the lie, you don't know that. Because you're still trying to perform for him because you want Christianity to feel the way you want it to feel instead of it being what it really is. Because we're, we're, we're swayed by how we feel. See, in the beginning, the devil, in Isaiah 14, it outlines enemy and Lucifer, and he says, I will ascend, I will be like the most high. That's the lie. And that's what the devil tells you and I in those situations and scenarios, that I will, I will fix myself, I will ascend, I'll get better, I'll try harder, I'll do this, I'll be like God next week, I'll do better, I'll, I'll fast more, I'll pray more, I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll, I, 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 I will come up. And what the thing is, is that deity, true deity, Jehovah Elohim, Yahweh, deity, did not ascend, he came down. 
And so anytime something starts happening in your life where you are put as the pedestal in the center of the situation, you know you're not thinking thoughts of Christ. You're buying the lie because you're not descending. How are you doing? Uh, let's see. To ascend would be to make it seem like I'm doing okay. I'm really not. To descend would be to actually live in truth and speak to my brother and my sister who care for me and tell them that, yeah, I really could use some prayer. Well, I don't want to bother them. Remember, you're members of one another, right? So if you're not bothering them, you're bothering yourself. If you're not bothering them, you're bothering yourself. People say that to me all the time as a pastor because they know I'm busy. They're like, I don't want to bother you. I'm like, that's why I'm here. That, my job description is to be bothered by people. <laughs> that's, that's what pastors are. That's what they should be. Right? I will, I will ascend. So when the enemy comes, he's always going to approach you from what you do not have. The same way he approached Adam and Eve. You'll be like, God, if you do this, you'll be all right. If you get that, you'll be all right. If your husband starts acting like this, things will be better. If your wife starts acting like this, things will be better. No, they won't. You know why? Because you're not healed. Because it doesn't matter if they change or not. If they perform every act flawlessly, you'll just raise the, you'll just raise the standard until they can't. And then you'll blame again. Don't see. I told you. Well, let me ask you this. Are you okay with the standard being raised that high in your life? See, I was, I was praying one day, and, and I was reading that scripture. It says, by his stripes we were healed. And I was going through a lot of emotional healing at that point in my life. And I thought, God, I want, I want that. And he spoke to me. And he said, your wounds reminds you of your pain. Your scars remind you of your pain. He said, my son's scars remind the world of their healing. He said, you'll know when you're really healed, when your scars remind you more of your healing than your pain. I was like, oh, I want that. And it has happened in my life. I mean, all those wounds and stuff, I, I look at and the healing is so much more alive to me than, than the wound ever was. See, what Christians don't understand is it takes pain to become perfect. Jesus learned obedience through the things which he suffered. How many want to suffer? Nope. Nope. See, it takes suffering to, be, to make a son. And we don't understand that when God sends somebody to our life, whether it's a spouse or whether it's somebody else or whatever it might be that causes us suffering, that's an invitation. It's not a dejection. It's an invitation. It's God's invitation for you to become one with Christ, not one with your pain or one with their sin. So many Christians running around and they're, that are one with other people's sin. <laughs> and that's not what Jesus prayed for. He said, I pray that we would be one. How many of you got that, that person in your life when you say their name, the, the, insides, the insides of your guts go? 
You know why that happens? Because you're one with their sin. You need to get to a place that you can pray so deeply for their blessing, not just their forgiveness. Bless them, Father. I can't bless them. You don't know what they've done to me. You, you have no clue what you did to God. He's constantly blessing you every day of your life. Blessing is not conditional upon performance. I know in the Old Testament it was, but New Testament is not. Because the blessing of God overtook us, and we did not perform for it very well at all. See, in the Old Testament, it was God was saying, you pursue me. In the New Testament, he says, I was found of those by people who did not look for me. That's you and me. <laughs> we found, I found the Lord. No, no, he found us. There was a big movement back in the, I don't know, maybe late 90s about God chasers. And like, eh, it's like, no, that's not how it works. Like, he's still chasing you. You feel like you're chasing because you're running away. If you stop, he might overtake you. John 8, 44, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. He's talking to a bunch of religious Pharisees. He's not talking to Greek heathens. He's talking to spiritual leaders, Christians, not in that sense, but you understand what I mean. You are of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. See, the lie always results in homicide. If you buy the lie, it's only a matter of time before you're killing your brother. I promise you. Whether it's your spouse or whether it's your brother in Christ or your sister in Christ or your kids, if you buy the lie, the results will end in homicide. It will. The fruit of the lie in Adam and Eve was the murder of Abel. 100%. The lie brings death. He says he was a murderer from the beginning, and he did not stand in the truth. What did it just say earlier what I, in Ephesians 6, 14? That our, our loins, we would stand with our loins girded in truth. Do you know what it is to live in truth? It's to protect the life of your brother at all costs. Not only to be able to replicate in truth, but to protect what was replicated in truth. How many of you guys have a baby and then you're like, oh, we did our job here, you know? No, 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 no. This is where it begins. That's why people don't like community, because you've now got to raise the babies you created. No, it's easier to be that person who just blows in and maybe gets a few saved and then leaves them in the lap of somebody else and goes out and goes to get some more, makes more babies. You're just creating orphanages is all you're doing. I always want to ask pastors all the time, well, we had 73 people baptized last week. And I said, it's a lot. That's awesome. No, no, that's a lot of work, bro. Like, because this is where it starts now. And you got to walk, man, you're going to have, I hope you got some people because 
you got 10 years of walking with 73 people, and they're going to go through a lot of garbage figuring this whole thing out. Like, I'm happy people get baptized, but a part of me is like, we have a baby now. <laughs> Prepare for no sleep. So the lie always results in homicide. And if we live in a lie, then what we create, what we, we will kill. Why do you think abortion is such a, a, a mark on this country? Because it's, the, it's what the church is doing to itself. See, the, the world follows the reality of what we release. You can blame society all you want, but the society responds, the earth responds to the sons of God. This is why Romans 8 says that all creation groans, longing for the manifestation of the sons of God. Why? Because creation actually responds to what we are doing. And if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, then we're going to feel that in creation. And so when the church lives in a lie and aborts its own babies, we wonder why we see it in the culture. It's easy to point fingers at all those people, but guess what? If people would have grown up in healthy, whole homes, <laughs> this wouldn't have happened. Or at least it would be a whole lot less. To lie to one another, to live a lie, is to impart sickness to ourself. How's it, how well does it go for you in a marriage if you lie to your spouse? Yeah, I heard a couple people go, ooh. How can we understand that we're connected just as much as you are connected to your spouse? Members of one another. You know, there's certain parts of my body I don't like either. You may not like me, but I'm still connected to you. You with me? We're going to try to hurry. Next verse. Be angry, do not sin, and don't let the, the, the sun go down on your wrath. This is quoted from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, where it says, Be angry, do not sin. Think about this when you are on your own bed, and then be silent. So in other words, what he's saying here is, is that when a brother offends you enough to get angry, because he's still talking about lying to one another, the context hasn't changed. He's talking about human relational in interaction with one another. And you have been angered by a brother. You're okay to be angry. But you should stop. You should look about it, at it the right way. You should commune with your heart on your own bed about it. And you should be in peace. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. To the Hebrew mind... The sun going down was the beginning of the first day. Don't start your day with the enemy in control of everything you own. This is why I say, if you have a problem with somebody in your life, get it right. Now, if you go to them and you try and they reject you, that's, that's their business. At least you tried. Because I have people that supposedly I wronged them somehow, and I can't still figure out how I did it, but I still didn't matter about that. I was like, if I offended you, I am so very sorry, and they didn't want to hear it. Okay? I can't control your will. You want to live in offense, that's your choice, but I'm sorry. I did my part. 
Are you with me? John 8, 44, when it says he was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you've heard it said of people a long time ago that you shouldn't kill anybody, but anyone who commits murder will be judged. But I'm telling you, if you're angry with someone, if you're angry with others, then you will be judged. And if you insult somebody, you will be judged by the high court. And if you call someone a fool, you'll be danger of hell. He says if, you, if, you, if you're angry at somebody without a cause, right, he says you're committing murder. What's it say here? Be angry and sin not. Psalm 4 says, be angry, but think about it while you're on your bed and then be silent. Get over it. Stop being angry with your brother if it's causing you to sin. Now, there's things that people do to other people that make me angry, but it doesn't bring me to a place of sin. Right? I'm angry at abortion. I don't like abortion. I hate it. I, ha I hate abortion. There's forgiveness for those who've had abortions. Thank God. Thank God. Don't get another one. You understand what I'm saying? But it makes me angry, but it doesn't cause me to sin. It makes me angry when I see someone, you know, hurting somebody else who's, who's innocent in the church. It makes me angry. Oh, they shouldn't do that. But thank God they're weak. I have to cover that. Help me in wisdom, God. Help me lead them through it. You be silent. You get on your own bed. You be silent about it, and you let God work through your heart. Why? Because the anger will produce the murder. Why? Because the murder is a liar. The lie is one to another, and the lie always ends in homicide. If you're angry with your spouse, get it out. Work it out. With me. So this whole essence of what Paul's saying here to the Ephesian church is that don't fight each other because if you do, you're going to wear yourself out before the real battle comes. And that's the enemy's tactics, to get us so focused on what's wrong in each other and what's wrong in our homes and what's wrong in our family, what's wrong in our life, what's wrong in this, what's wrong with the preacher, what's wrong, that we are attacking and devouring one another so that when he actually shows up, he doesn't even need to fight us Galatians 5.13 says, You were called to freedom, brothers, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to usurp yourself, in other words. But through love, serve one another. Use your freedom to serve one another. Verse 14, the whole law is fulfilled in, word, in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But he says in verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, because you will consume each other. That's gross. That's cannibalism. We are members of one another. True or not? So if you're biting and devouring one another, who are you really eating? It's cannibalism. That's gross. See, interactions with our brothers and sisters are in direct conflict or unity with the powers of the air. How we treat each other empowers one or the other. Does this make sense? Verse 27. Don't give him a chance. How do we do that? By being angry, being unforgiving, being bitter, being, lying to one another. All these things give place to the devil. So if you're going to give place to the devil, in other words, if you're going to live in lying and fear and shame and unbelief and, and anger towards one another, guess what you've already done? You've given a place to the devil. And then, through your theology, you think you're going to go fight him with your shouts and shabbas. And it doesn't mess with him at all. Because we haven't done what, what's come before these verses. Listen, I'll say it this way. 
you want to value God? I mean, you want to value God and value his people. You want to serve God? Then serve his people. You want to love God? Then love his people. You want to minister to God? Minister to his people. Well, that's not biblical. Then you need to go read Ezekiel 44. God doesn't need our ministry. Then why does it say it in the Bible? You realize there were certain priests that were only set aside just to minister to God, and there were other ones that were set aside only to minister to the people? <laughs> Have you ever read that? It's not that God needs our ministry. It's not, he's, he doesn't have a deficit. He just likes fellowship. I like fellowship, right? What about fellowship with people you don't like? See, Jesus doesn't like a lot of things that you do. But he likes you. And he's able to separate the two. Can you? In you? Can you separate it in you? If you can't separate it in yourself, you will not be able to separate it in someone else. You will pick apart the thing in other people because that's what you're doing to your own heart. Verse 28. I wish I could go into that more. Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor with his working with his hands for what is good so that he might have something who is, to give who is in need. He says, if you're a thief, stop stealing. Why? Because stealing's wrong? No, because so that you can work and be a blessing. You see, the, you see the difference? Why? Because if you're stealing from your brother, you're not able to help your brother. The whole goal here is not the, the, the focus of sin of theft. Why does Paul say stop stealing? So that you might have something to give to those who are in need. Why? Again, because it comes back to each other. We are members of one another. So in other words, we can look at this, well, I don't steal, I don't, I don't take mascara from Kmart or Target. But you know what you do steal from your brother when you don't offer him love whenever he doesn't deserve it? You steal his healing. Verse 29 Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Why? Because it's so bad to say those things. No, because you have power and authority as a son, and what you release is what you create. See, if we look at it from the sin aspect, we're going to say, oh, you can't say those four-letter words. That's not really what he's talking about. In fact, in one part we're going to get to, he says, even coarse jesting on one another, stop it. Because you're speaking things over your people. And if you're speaking it over them, we're members of one another, we're speaking it over ourselves. You ever wonder why in the Bible it says, in meekness instruct those who oppose themselves? Because much of what we call the fight of our life is just self-opposition. It's you fighting against you. Whether in the body or by how you treat your spouse. If you, 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 do you know that what the Bible says, that husbands, if you don't treat your wives right, he won't hear your prayer? 
<laughs> I'm praying. It don't matter. You ain't treating your wife right. Women are all like, yeah. But then you get to the part where it's like, well, wives submit to your husbands and everything. Does that mean abuse? No, that doesn't mean abuse. We'll get into that. But, but the women don't want to amen that one. Yeah. All the Bible says is submit one to another as unto the Lord. Yeah. It also says submit to your husbands. That's what it says. I didn't write it. And everybody wants to like, oh, he's not worthy of it. And da, 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 da. Listen, if, you, if your husband's an unbeliever, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I understand. But if he's trying, and he's really trying to serve God, he's trying to love God, and he's really trying to, to do things right, and he's trying to lead his family the best he can, and you don't submit, it's not going to go good for you. It's just not. It's the same way it's not going to go right for a man if he doesn't treat his wife right, and he tries to pray, he tries to seek God. It's not going to happen. How we treat one another. If our context with each other is only the, the wrong that we're doing, we're, we're, not, we're not operating like Christ. You, you and I need to stop evaluating our relationships based on what's wrong. Some of you have created such strong strongholds in your mind concerning other people that when you look and see their face, the only thing that you can think about is the stuff that they did wrong. Like you created a stronghold here. You cannot see them as God sees them anymore. You see them through the sin, which means you become one with their sin. That's so dangerous. Because that kind of accusation will turn on you. And you're accusing them, it's only a matter of time where you'll begin to accuse yourself. Are you, are you hearing me? How important is the communal life? It's far more important than we actually want it to be. We prefer it not to be so important. <laughs> but it's huge, right? Let no harmful word come out of your mouth, only what is benefiting to the building up of others according to the need so that it gives grace to those who hear it. Why, why do people need grace? Because they're going through just as much as you are. We're just so self-consumed about what we're going through, we forget that we're members of one another. What John said up here is absolutely accurate. I've taught people for years, if you want God to move in your reality, you move in someone else's. If you want your kids saved, get somebody else's saved. If you want your wife right with God, get somebody else's wife right with God. If you want your husband right with God, get somebody else's husband right with God. If you want your finances blessed, you work to, to bless somebody else's finances. You pray, you, fat, you seek the betterment of somebody else's, and guess what that does? It releases something. Why? Because when you're ministering to them, you're also ministering to yourself. When you're fighting the devil in somebody else's life, guess where you're also fighting the devil? In your own. You cannot strengthen the rest of the body and not have positive benefits that come back to you. And you cannot tear the body down without having negative come back, uh, things coming back to you. Does this make sense? You can stand. I know, I know today was a little teachy. But we need the word of truth in our life. And we need to become that truth so that when we speak the word of truth, there's no disconnect between the two. We don't need to be people living a lie and believing a lie. 
and then trying to speak truth because it's theological jargon. I call it regurgitated theology. It's not the thing that we are. It's just something we've learned. And then when we get around other people to sound smart, we just talk about what we know and we hide who we really are. It's truth. It's the spirit of truth whenever you walk up to somebody and go, man, I'm really walking in a lot of unbelief right now. I know it's wrong, but it's where I am. And I know that's not where Christ has me, but I'm still stuck in the middle, and I need help getting through. If somebody came to you and said that, would you think badly about them? No. So why do you think somebody's going to think badly about you? Somebody asked me how my week was going this week, and I said, well, it hasn't been that great. I said, Most of it's probably more, mostly self-opposed. <laughs> Just being honest. You know. They're like, I'm going to pray for you, brother. I'm like, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's being true. See, I don't need you to be what you think I need you to be. I need you to be where you are, as you are, in truth. Real honest. Amen? Father, help us. Forgive us for, for operating in the spirit of the lie. Forgive us for operating in the spirit of, of, of homicide, not only to ourselves, but to our brothers and sisters, our spouses, our marriages, our children. Release them from what we've put over them if it wasn't from you. And release us from the things that we've put over ourselves that wasn't of you. So that we can walk in freedom. And not use that freedom as a license to dominate one another, but to serve one another. Let your word be truth in us. And may we be true, creating generational truth that offsets the lie and the degradation that we see in our society. Let revival come to the homes, to the churches. Not good services, but powerful, true relationships. Ones established in love. Holy Spirit, bring us to the knowledge of Christ's love. Personally, so it can flow corporately. Let it be received. Do your work like only you can do. We honor you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. We invite you to come back this evening if you can and have time. Thank you guys for coming.